1: You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes,
0: your host, John Peter. I am John Teter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximizer Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I just got back from a nice trip, and uh, I had some time on the road to think. And in that thinking, I talked to a lot of different clients as well, potential clients, current clients, clients that have contacted me from the past, which is awesome. It's great to connect with people. I did have a call out, and I thought that was kind of interesting. An individual had gotten a hold of me that had tried to hire me a couple years ago, and he just didn't like my, my time to the time it took me to get to his property. And I understand that people want instantaneous support and um, you know, you've know, you got a plan. And he said his plan failed. He hired a consultant, really big name guy, and, and, and it failed. And it doesn't matter who the person was. This isn't about other people. This is about what he did or didn't do. And I'm going to talk about this really quick because I think it's important. I think this this individual was wanting to find success and he expected somebody to give him an answer as quick as possible. And I almost think that this individual didn't take the time to really think through his expectations of what he wanted during the visit from the output like maps design layout what he wanted there or what he expected from the consultant. And the level of detail and sophistication not only of the individual but the consultant became in question during the conversation. So this is a big name individual, okay? And I, again, it doesn't matter who it was, but, and everyone will sit here and pontificate on that topic, but listen to this. Very simple. When you're hiring somebody and he didn't want to wait, now he's calling me two years later and said, I've made a mistake. He gives me some bits of data. It's a couple hundred acre property. Seemed like a fantastic guy to talk to. Very conscientious, thought through a lot of things and said, hey, he validated some of the things that I expected. And I said, well, oh, that seems like a win. You had an idea, a layout a setup, and he validated that. What did you expect otherwise? Well, I wanted more detail. Well, what did you expect he would provide you in that dialogue? Did he tell you how to do some cuttings and layouts? Well, he we just talked about crop tree release. Okay, that's it. That's it. Did he tell you where you should put the bedding areas? No. What did you expect if you didn't ask the question? You need to know what you're asking these consultants. You need to have a plan. Sit down and go through your list of questions. You have an opportunity to dialogue with them. You can't be a big name guy in this industry and do consulting and not get the client to a point where they feel comfortable after you leave. I mean, my expectation, and it's tough, in a day visit, you're just, you're it's a, it's a fire hose, we're ramming. But you got to keep it simple stupid. I mean, even for me as a consultant, if I don't, if I don't have a systematic methodology to evaluating a pro, property and, and giving them the lens to discover the changes they can make, then I'm not worth my weight at all. Don't hire me. You're wasting your time. You got to have vision intact and, tact and str- strategy. There's, there's so much strategy behind this. Whether you're trying to develop ecological function, you're trying to optimize, you're trying to create abundance, and abundance in food, abundance in soil, whatever you're trying to do on your property, you need to have a real objective. You can't achieve something if you don't understand what you're missing. So it's, it's the consultant's opportunity to show you what you don't have. Not one property that I've been to, and I've been to properties that are highly laid out, designed. other consultants have been here, has been to the degree of sophistication and level detail that I would expect, period. Period, 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 period. And I only say that not to boast myself or pump my business up or pump me up because I have higher expectations. If you're going to have a property that has low deer numbers or a property that's high deer numbers, you need to attack those issues as part of the entire equation. Or if you're in a highly hunted pressured area, you need to have a tact and strategy directly related to that. That will be highly influential on what your deer do on your particular property. It's a lot easier for me to go out west. I'm not degrading people that do this in the west, but it is a lot easier for me to go out west. I'll leave it at that. But I want to end with one thing here. My success is your success. You need consulting that gives you that vision the purpose on the landscape, when they look at it through their lens, it are they meeting your objectives and goals? Are they exploring those in a level of detail that are deep enough for you to make some decisions? Are they giving you the tools? And in that discussion, are they, they giving you the finite tools in an individual area? Are they getting down to the acre, the foot level, the 10-acre level? Depends on the scope of the property. But are they giving you the level of detail you need to move? When When I'm done with the clients that day, that first day, they better they better start moving. I need feedback, and this is the one thing I do with my clients. It's different. Is once you get on board and you're on the schedule and you're a client, we're clients for life. Today, I'm meeting with a client that we're going to do a turnkey property on, and we're going through his plan. And I, it's absolutely willing for. Me, it's important that I take the time to make sure he's comfortable. He's walking in and making an investment. If you're making an investment in your property, you know this is the value stream. We need to make sure that you're comfortable getting there, that you know the outcome will be great. And these people have already achieved success. It's, it's refining that so it's more efficient. Or in some cases, it's just starting, starting to get them on board. And the feedback I get from these clients is my success because I learn through their failures and successes. Their success is my success, their failure is my failure. And that's the way I review it and think about it. I'm not a big herbicide guy. I do very simple things that are ecologically based. I am learning on a day-to-day basis. Uh, The level of of information that I'm ingesting on a daily basis is, is starting to kill me sometimes because it creates this analysis paralysis, but it gives me a different perspective. And I'm trying to get different perspectives, not just to be different, but to be the best. In order to be the best, you need to think as different as possible because it gives you that worldly kind of design idea philosophy that will achieve different levels. And those levels to this point, and with this other consultant, those levels are greater than other people, because in order for me to achieve success in areas that are highly pressured, and there's low deer numbers, you have to think outside of the box. Anybody that wants to get into this business, and I'm going to talk about my masterclass here in a second, you really 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 got to take years and years and years off your life to just focus on on the uh, the tools the techniques the operation of things what things look like how they feel it's going to take you years I, I wouldn't I would never hire somebody that doesn't have at least fifteen or twenty years of experience doing this at this point in my life, and the reason being is the guy that said I should have hired you two years ago I said, well here look at it this way you got a guy that's 2 years smarter, 3 years smarter from the last time we contacted. I said you'll benefit from that. All right? The guy that just starts off that you want to cheap out and you you want to get him in the door because hey, it's a good deal, it never works out. It doesn't have the level of sophistication he needs. How much timber has he cut? Has he done has he done a sale? Has he sold timber, right? What's his farming background? What type of farming style does he employ? Right? Cuz a lot of these are agricultural properties. Has he thought about your Financial or tax situation? Has he bought his own land? Does he have the experience buying and selling land? Right? What's his success on his own property? What's the level of detail he's got on his property? So, I'm going to talk about my masterclass. So, I I just started advertising for the masterclass. There's people signed up. I'm excited. It'll be a great time. It's in July, July 20th. It's on my website. I'm going to talk about the masterclass in an individual podcast. We're going to get into the details of that masterclass. That is for clients or future clients only. Okay. So the goal out of that masterclass is to get them to that high level, you know, sophisticated, introspective thinking through property and property design. So these are clients, some of them are clients that I've had. We've done implementation work. I've consulted, right? They want to see more. They want to get more of the details. They want to think, uh, more about the the tact and strategic opportunities that I've kind of you know laid out and set up on my property. And somebody said, well, you know what's what am I going to learn in a conversation? Well, you're going to get a ton of paperwork, and that paperwork is going to give you the level of detail you need to translate on your property. And I, I think I've devalued the class at the amount that I've offered it at. But you know this is the first class I've ever done, one on one, or excuse me with a group, And I really feel like it's an opportunity for me to give back. And that's why I've said it at the rate that I've said it. And I actually feel like, you know, this level of detail, and I've, again, I've had a chance to look at other people's one-on-ones and, you know, one-on-tens, the training that they've done with folks. And and we're going to get to the foot-by-foot level in this property. You're going to go through all my mistakes, my failures, my wins, and my successes, and how I think through each issue. We're going to define problem sets, and we're going to resolve those just like you're at work on a day-to-day basis, right? You got an issue, you got to resolve it. You want to resolve it in a, a timely, efficient manner. So the client saves, you save, and you want to have purpose behind it. And you want to ensure that those changes or suggestions or recommendations get you to the next level, get you past that point of the problem and issue. So that's kind of what the focus of the the one-on-one day is going to be, or excuse me, the training day with, with the masterclass. And, and again, I, I think this this level of detail is going to blow your mind. I think the property is fantastic. And I bought the property knowing that it was the hardest property that I would design and lay out because it's a proving ground for me. It gives me that, that reassurance that I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. No doubt. So when you're hiring a consultant, make good decisions. I stay with my clients past the visits Again, that supporting information back and forth between the clients and I is really critical to my growth. Growth is huge for me. I'm studying, I'm learning, I'm learning about new things. It allows me to differentiate myself from other folks that do this professionally. It's not my goal to be better, it's my goal to be great. I want to be great in my own respect. I'm not going to understand every aspect of soil composition and how things work necessarily on a functional or scientific level but I'm going to get the basics down. I'm going to get advanced in other areas because I see what the return on investment is, how I cut timber. I want deer to bed in close canopy forests. <laughs> Opposite of what you hear, good reason and good measure why, right? You get to learn about those type of things. there will be very sophisticated, well thought out techniques that you're going to learn on this property that that will be different. And the intention is to level up. The reason I'm doing this in my life that I focus on this is because I have an obligation. I have an obligation to excel from the le- level of folks that have been doing this for years. And I can take that knowledge and I can grow it. And from growing it, you get the benefit. All right, that's enough with that. i excited about the masterclass. I'm going to be doing some giveaways. There is an entity that listens to this particular podcast that loves it. And they sent me a bunch of giveaways. So I'm going to be giving some giveaways. If you want to have that, you want to be a giveaway type company and promote your company, I'll explain your product, whether I like it or not. You want to give free giveaways to, to folks, please do that. I'm, I'm not doing this necessarily to, uh, to grow my, my money in my pocket. I'm doing it to promote companies that listen to this. And that's not to advertise for them necessarily, but frankly, that does. I'm not taking any money from any companies. I have no intention to do this. This is not my bread and butter, right? My bread and butter is consulting. My bread and butter is not podcasting. And so uh, I just want to relay that. So the podcast you're going to listen to is a replay. Not from this, but from a podcast I was on. I interviewed, uh, I was interviewed by another individual. You'll like that, Pennsylvania Woodsman. They're on Sportsman's Empire. If you already listened to it, listen to it again. It was really, I think, a good conversation. It's a chance for me to be interviewed instead of interviewing people. I thought that would be a better chance for folks to listen to me and think kind of through what I Look at what I think about and how I approach things. You know the level details there. I do talk about some other consultancy. He he wanted to be a little racy and asked me some questions. And I I very tactfully, I'm very respectful of those individuals and individuals that do this. And I appreciate you know learning from others. I, I think I'd just go on to say that you know my opinion is my opinion. And again, you're really good at things when you have the opportunity to dive in as deep as physically possible. You know the essence of having abundance on our properties is boiling down to have good soils and good plant life, and have good ideology and having sound e- ecological principles. That's what this ends up being. And these little tactics and strategies you'll hear on the the particular podcast you're going to listen to is really aspects of that are a little beyond, beyond the ecological. You know what are the specific you know implementation techniques? Dear generalists, and and when you're thinking about some of these keystone species. You've got to really think about what they actually need and what they adapt to. And deer are quite adaptable. You know they they want they want a good life. We want them to be lazy. We don't want a lot of them, but we want enough to feel that kind of social dependence on on having the right experiences. Objectively, having some experiences that that you feel like are going to uh, give you value. And again, everyone has different perspectives on what quality's like. And I would say everyone that appreciates quality, either you know, quality information or quality approach or quality hunt, recognizes that the level of quality is going to vary for each one of you. And so in that, whether it's the masterclass or listening to this podcast, I hope that you get a lot of quality information and it changes your mindset. It gives you something to stretch for, think about in a little bit different manner. So I appreciate everybody listening to this, following me, get ready for the giveaways. I'm excited to do that. I want to thank that company next week. I'm going to do a podcast on my masterclass. We'll have a bunch of other cool podcasts coming up. I'm starting to get those in queue. And I really think that, you know, this, this is one of the greatest podcasts that I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a part of. I, I don't feel like it's mine. I think, I think it's yours. And I think it's, you know, you're, you're helping me grow this and, and getting my word out and giving me some clout and opportunity to express my philosophies and ideologies and how I approach things. And there's people that, that look at this as as one of the best Habitat podcasts and design podcasts, period. And I I appreciate those that feel that way. And if you don't, give me feedback. I am open to suggestion and recommendation, bar none. All right, so enjoy this podcast. Enjoy listening and and start to think different. That's the goal out of this. And I appreciate you all. Appreciate you all listening. Please give me a five-star review. Whether you visit my website, you go to Apple, Spotify, please do that. Please take the time to do that. I value that again, I do this for, for, for fun and education and enjoyment and to connect. All right. That's the purpose behind this. So let's have fun with this. All right. I'll talk to you all later and best of luck to everybody. Continue to be safe out there cutting and managing your property. See ya.
1: All right. Joining me on today's show, I've got uh, my good friend here, uh, host of Whitetail Landscapes podcast, John Teeter. John, thank you for taking some time coming on our show.
0: Yeah, great. I'm happy to happy to be here. You got a lot of great guests on your show, so uh, <laughs> I'm just happy to be able to contribute.
1: Well, uh, likewise to you. I mean, I've I've uh, I've noticed you've you've had a bunch of new guests. You know, you, you know, for those of you who don't listen to John's show, first of all, you need to. Whether you're um, a private land hunter or you're a public land hunter, there's a lot of things that relate to. Uh, buck activity buck behavior that can help you hunting uh and and john really does a good job and so does his, his guests but i've noticed you've had a couple newer people you have a lot of reoccurring people a lot of people that you know are within the um, the, the private world and consulting community and you've kind of expanded upon that and it's, it's been really interesting to see a lot of those relationships develop i really like how you uh kind of bring together as a community because i definitely think within the private land consulting stuff there, there's definitely some egos and stuff that go on and you don't get that at all with your show John and I really appreciate that
0: yeah thanks Mitch um, I think the big thing with my show is I'm bringing like-minded people together to educate like we're not in this just for business reasons or making money right and that's a lot of these people that are I see trying to come up in the this side of the industry that's their entire focus they want to have name recognition uh, they want to make money right And and that's a business right you got to run like a business a lot of these guys are established and they have businesses and their approach has been, you know, I learn as you go and they learn from people around you. And it really is, it is kind of, I feel like the best of the best. And, um, you know, I've had a chance to physically meet with people, to cut with people. So I've got a chance to interact with some of these guys. And it's, you know, it's the Jim Wards, it's the Jake Ellingers, right? It's those type of guys that I feel like have been, I want to say ground changing or Earth-shattering. They've brought a lot to the table for folks, and it's my job as the younger generation to take it to the next level and think even more finer detail. And 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 um, this isn't just a broad brush type business. There's real nuances and particularities and things that I'm working on that make you know my designs and my philosophies unique to my perspective. But there's a whole host of like I'm going to do. Um, There's a podcast we just did on introducing cattle and pigs on the landscape, which is kind of cool. How to benefit your deer hunting with adding poultry. I mean, come on, things that you don't always think about. Uh, I'm going to work on new projects, a couple research scientists this year that you're going to see how we build agroforestry. And so I'm taking some farming practices and I'm putting it to the betterment of of our deer and deer hunting, which is really cool and I think kind of helps people just look at things a little more, I don't know, holistically and, and, you know, we're not just always deer centric. So hopefully that helps people think a little more about the show.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of us that are definitely the the number one priority, right? Is white tails and mature deer and yada, yada, yada. But uh, I think there's very few people that can justify spending the, the funny uh, uh, the money solely on whitetails without having some other way of justifying that land purchase i know sometimes it's a family property and stuff like that but you want to talk about the the price of land and investing stuff usually there's got to be a way to make it pay and utilize it for other aspects especially if you've got a family so there's a lot to it and uh i think that's one one question i have for you one of the hardest things that I've had, you know, I've been fortunate to have some conversations with people, mostly on the food plot side of things, but usually my food plot conversations all relate to hunting and hunting strategy and how you're going to do things throughout your hunting property. And I think the thing that I struggle with the most is uh, just the, the communication side of things, is how do I communicate what is going through my head, the way I'm visualizing this property, and explaining how I, I'm, I'm you know, seeing this, um changing the way people hunt or changing the way somebody uh, views their property. And then uh, also the consideration of how their family might want to use the property that that, that's a really tough thing. How have you navigated that topic over the years? Because it's one thing to do it for yourself. It's another to do it for somebody else and explain it to them and then execute it.
0: Yeah, it's, (laughs) that's a pretty loaded question. And a lot of times we start with objectives, like, why did you buy the land? And when you start boiling it down, some, sometimes it's just I want to get away, you know, and, and, and that might just be, you know, because of their stress of life. And they want a more enjoyable hunting experience. So, you know, or they might not have the time to invest in their property, and so they don't see the vision. So my job is to give them vision. And in, in that, we explore their goals and objectives, and we, we follow the, some of the principles, which are really kind of just landform management principles and the other piece of it is looking at like, you know, taking it to a finer level. Like if your goals are simply, you know, I want better deer hunting, that's such a an abstract goal. Let's define that a little bit more. And so I'm building charts and tables. And when I do my consulting visits, we look at, you know, landmass, uh, ge- geographic benefits, you know, to your particular landscape area. Breaking down, you know, the plant life, the volume of plants. That just just looking at every aspect of the property, and when you start having those conversations, more will reveal itself. They don't understand their goals a lot of times, so I'm, I'm not force-feeding things down the throat. I'm asking questions and thinking through different objectives to get them, okay, what am I actually trying to create here, and how much time do I have, what are my resources, and usually what happens is, you know, they may put in things to appease their family members, you know, ponds, right? pollinator planning some people want honey some people want grapes some people want an apple orchard you know there's just different things that you know are concluded where you start to add aspects of their design and philosophy maybe they want to bring their kids honey. and so you have to think about design a hunting property for children rather than adults and there, there's a there's a different strategy there with the kids and there are parents and and so how how quickly you have to adapt to you know people's either belief system or you know how they how they're educated i mean there's just it's a lot to it. You can't just jump in this and hope to just educate people. I'm like, you got to do it this way. Well, it doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, it is very loaded. And like I said, uh, uh, goals and objectives are a huge, huge thing. And <clears throat> one of the things, uh, the main reason I wanted to bring you on today, John, um, I wanted to talk about, you know, some off-season stuff that we're going to do here in the wintertime. Um, <clears throat> and we're we're going to try to be – a little bit on the specific side, but I, I do understand that ev- everything is very case by case in a property. You know, it's, it, there's there's no um, cookie cutter um, answer for bedding areas and cutting on a property. Like there, there's there's going to be specific things, but we're, we're going to try to go through a couple scenarios and cutting and uh, and work. And just pick your brain on it in perspective. So as we're uh, as we're going through and, and this episode launches our statewide deer season in pennsylvania here just closed uh, our flintlock muzzleloader season just closed now if you're in you know the the extended areas you can still do some hunting to the end of january but we're just closed and i know a lot of people you know fresh in their mind the hunting experiences they had and everything else that they have they want to improve usually the first thing i hear people talk about doing is is breaking out the chainsaws and i want to cut some trees down i want to i want to cut some bedding areas i want to make some sunlight for when spring green-up happens to get things thicker. Um, or, you know, The other thing, too, is a lot of people will say, well, I want to cut some trees down so we've got some tops to feed deer, you know, get some browse you know, at, at uh, ground level, and that's all well and good. But <clears throat> one of the things I'm really interested in is, is being – deliberate because i just hunted a property this week that uh, the landowner has done a bunch of cutting but it's very random i mean it's in bedding areas but it doesn't relate to the hunt in my opinion i think it makes it very very hard so i want to kind of break that down a little bit with you um you know, first off, off the bat, um, you, you killed a great buck this year, and uh, you you talked about that a little bit on your podcast this year. I, I'm kind of curious: were there specific cutting strategies used for you to harvest that deer?
0: Yeah, I actually cut the bedding area before the season just to kill not that specific deer, but one of the older age class deer on my property. So, in that instance, uh, typically. You know, I'm dealing with a lot of hillside and undulation, so my elevation changes a couple hundred feet in different areas, which is a good thing. It also makes the deer uh, be more inclined to visual. There's things, what we call as heat maps. So I develop, when I'm looking at a property, heat map. I look at the cold areas and the warm areas, and that's one of the foundations. I also look at the soil type, the saturation of that soil, and the hydrology. So you know, this is a little bit deeper than deer hunting, but when you're coming up with a plan the resident tree life or vegetation that's related to those specific areas will be indicators of deer interest and time. So I'll think about seasonality. You know, when is a deer going to be in a particular area and why? And so if I'm going to be able to define a why with a chainsaw, my objective is to put food in the table at the right time or build the right structure to conceal deer, etc. So in that particular area, the cutting technique was there's a shelter wood cut adjacent to that. So there's um, hard maple species, which a lot of times people when shelter shelter would cut those, but, but I did in that instance. I've got a, y- a lot of young hard maple coming up in that particular instance. Some of the some of the area trees include beech in the sunnier zones. I hinge cut those, hinge beech hinge cut really really well. They put a lot of structure, and they were good quality beech, not diseased beech. So I just want to make sure that's clear. And I wanted to have those species, you know, root shoot. And to create kind of a concealment factor in that equation. So you see when you're cutting each one of these tree species, you're developing a purpose, whether it's a food purpose, a cover purpose, etc. The trick to that area is I opened up a herbaceous zone, meaning I I created enough volume of sunlight in a particular area. And by the way, another cool part about this is I created water channels. And so these water channels will come off the hill and I swale them into an area. So now I'm adding water into a sunny opening, which makes it more voluminous and herbaceous material, which creates a, creates a good feeding zone. So think about like a big circle. And in the circle, I had all these different cutting techniques. Shelter wood, meaning I leave seed trees, trees to produce more trees. I have an understory of trees underneath that, which I would prefer like dogwood species, et cetera. But I got maple. And I've got beech in adjacent. I've got some ironwood in a couple areas. and Basically, picking each tree, its quality, uh, you know, its 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 status on the landscape. You know, is it is it is a subordinate tree or is it a is it a co-dominant tree? And and just defining each one of the tree species. And really, the cool part was I built structure like shrubbery. It looks like shrubbery because on my property it's all wooded. I wish I had shrubland areas. Now I'm trying to create that in pockets. But what I always found was deer have a tendency to just soak up the cover in high, highly under pressure situations so if i can create the right volume of cover and like a little bit of a herbaceous area the deer have a tendency to bed in those areas frequently and so to speak one of my you know target deer which is uh, my second and third deer debatable um came through that particular area pushing a doe two days before that he was breeding her in that area and then two days following that he came back through you know checking that area for resident doe so it kind of worked out in the play of things and um You know, it's just fortunate when you're putting together the story uh, and and designing a property for a particular time of year, and that was designed for rut hunting. That spot was specifically just for rut hunting. I wanted to have the right volume of structure and composition of that structure in that particular area. And, um, you know, I, I know it sounds like hocus pocus, but, you know, I got guys hunting literally all around me, Mitch. And I have to do so many little things on this 46 acres to make it function correctly. They have to come through this pitch. They're going to use this area at a particular time. You know, I need to know when they're using an area. So I strengthen my property throughout the season by the style of cutting that I make. So I'm not losing as many deer in the rut. My resident doe herd can circle. There's a lot of scape cover. I'm thinking a lot through just how they move on the landscape.
1: Yeah, that that's uh, that's a really interesting topic. And so... <clears throat> John, you're probably familiar. I think it was a few years ago. Um, there was, I think it was at the Iowa Deer Classic or Midwest Deer Classic or something like that. Two very well known consultants in the hunt in the whitetail industry came up to the stage in a in a debate format. Um, and, and I'll name drop; it doesn't matter. It was it was Don Higgins and Tony LaPrat. And I I really enjoyed that conversation because I think both of those guys are very knowledgeable have a, have a lot to offer. But you're talking about very very different areas and unique styles of how they approach their hunting properties. And I think when you start, if if you're somebody that owns a property and you're thinking, uh, what do I want to do with this property? I want to make it better. I want, I want this. And you listen to those two different guys' trains of thoughts when it comes to bedding cover and things like that, you can really get yourself lost in the weeds there. Do you think a lot of the strategies that have, Um, developed across all the different consultants across the country. Do you think that's purely based on geography and the the location in which they come from? Or do you think there's a lot of good strategies? They're just different.
0: Uh, That's a good question. I think some of the strategies, so some of it some of this is sociobiology. So some of the deer have grown up in pressured situations. So they're used to hunting or you know being accustomed to a lot of deer, you know a, a lot of hunting pressure. And that dictates how they move and flow through the landscape. They may be less inclined to move through open areas. Just as a simple example. When you start to look at, you know, these different consultants, and this this is really a tough question because, you know, if you look at their individual property. So you look at Don Higgins' property, you know, he's an island in a sea of, of corn, right? And he's an island property is different from a peninsula property, or property that connects to a, a larger body of other properties. Tony Le Pratt's property falls somewhere in between there. Uh, Jake Ellinger is another example, and you can cyberstock all these properties, and it's it's interesting. I did this years and years ago to just figure out, you know, what, what are these guys working with? You look at Jake's property, and Jake's property is considered an island. And so these island properties in their landscapes function a lot different than a property that's connected to other properties. So start there. Now you add in the factor of you know what what is the deer competency meaning you know how do deer perceive their landscape and how do they approach you know hunting pressure how do they how they how do they um, anticipate certain stimuli how do they react that affects how they move through the landscape period. So in my world. Um, the, you know, I, I hunt elevation, I hunt, you know, industrial parks, right? I have a whole plethora of different understanding of how to hunt different areas, it's it's really specific to the particular zone that you're hunting in. So if you're hunting a lot of deer, you usually have a food deficiency. Um, you know, if you're hunting, you know, and, and more eyes, right, and that's that's a concern. That that's changes the style of your bedding layouts and how you set up deer, you know, in these particular areas, um, That that's a big, big factor. I don't think Higgins is wrong. I don't think Lapret is wrong. I just think they never hunted areas like this. I think, you know, without that level of experience, I think the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is not as sharp as somebody that has to be very particular. And one of my best pieces of advice, and I always feel sad for the guys in the south because they don't get this, is we get a lot of snow here. And my ability to do intel, like forensic intel, and just understanding what's going on in the landscape is far better than most people. And so having that volume of information shows me what deer are eating, when they're in an area, you know, how they're using a particular area and what conditions they're using it. And so deer that are highly stimulated because of the pressure that's in, in their particular area, they're gonna be very motivated to pick certain locations. And so to replicate that or to increase interest in an area, just planting switchgrass or just having diversity pockets isn't good enough. None of that really lays out well, because you have to think of how a deer is going to escape, how it returns back to an area, you know. And one of the things that we do with our clients is we separate their properties from the rest of the properties with how we cut timber. And with the bedding areas specifically, that's the one thing that I focus on is how do we differentiate our property? And at the same point, how do we control their movement and not limit them so much where they don't want to enter an area because they're too controlled. Whereas some of these properties that become these islands, you know, they basically create maze systems within the property. Well, we do the same thing. But the density and volume of cover and the concept of separating deer, even the idea of compartmentalization, isn't something that folks like Don Higgins have to consider. Their deer are very very acclimated to a lot of social pressure. Our deer are not. So you'll watch these deer herds in these certain areas congregate and their interactions really important to understand how they you know, socially segregate, sexually segregate, those things are all meaningful when you're starting to figure out how to design a hunting property. That's why here you hear everybody talk about buck beds stacked behind, you know, doe bedding areas, etc. That separation happens in certain instances more frequently here because, again, sexual segregation is a big thing, particularly more related to age class, too. That's another factor in these, uh, these equations. So in a roundabout way, I feel like you have to be very sharp and if you hunt very tough areas, you tend to be a little sharper, and that doesn't mean I'm smarter than those guys or I have better recommendations. I've just hunted harder areas, and hunting harder areas and being successful and having to be more sophisticated in my approach makes me a little different, particularly in the Northeast. And and I, I won't say they're bad in their recommendations or suggestions. They only know what they know because of the environments they work in, and that's not Pennsylvania. You know, that's not Michigan. They're, they They don't they're in different areas, and, and as a result, hunting very mountainous terrain is is very different than hunting, you know, farmland ground, etc. So I think I think there's a lot in that kind of conversation.
1: There is, and I'm glad you brought that, that up, John. Um, and that's why we wanted to have you on this conversation because um, you and I are very familiar with the, the habitat and terrain and everything else in New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and West Virginia and all that stuff in the northeast. It's a very unique area, very high density of hunters and everything else. There's a lot going on there. So let, let's let's come up with some scenarios for, for cutting that are relatable. I, I know you've talked about your property. I think your property in that neighborhood of 40 acres. Uh, a lot of people that listen to this hunt properties you know they might have that that the back 40, the back 20, the back 10, the back 100 acres, whatever you've got. Um, and, and I know you talked about things being uh, monotonous, uh, mostly timber. I hunt a lot of that. There's a lot of properties. I mean, the property I shot my buck, 100% timber, north-facing slope. Uh, property I've grown up hunting was a, a big chunk of, you know, the same age deciduous oak hickory forest. Um, I hunt some big woods in northern Pennsylvania. That's beech birch maple, you know, plat- Allegheny Plateau type stuff. So I'm used to hunting that, that type of stuff. So you know, the first thing that I think about, too, I mean, uh, food moves deer and, and, and you know, unpressured food really has an impact on movement outside of hunting pressure, right? So a lot of the time when I think of stuff, me being the food plot guy, if I'm thinking how I can get in and get out and set a food plot up and move deer, I'm doing that. But when, if that's a small percentage of my property and wherever that lays out and the rest of it, I can dedicate to bedding. I'm kind of curious. First of all, do you look at that property and say, um, let's just say it's bare bones, um, um, same age forest. And my goal is I want to shoot the best buck I can. And I don't care what time of the year it is. Um, Tell me a little bit about when you walk into the area that's off the field edge, that's off the food plot, that's we're going to deem to try to stack deer in here. How much do you rely on using what they're doing now in your cutting schemes versus um, I'm just going to cut this based on terrain and get them to move where I want them to move?
0: Okay, that's a that's a catch twenty two issue because a lot of times what I when I work with the clients the first thing is what is what what have you traditionally done, and a lot of times they don't understand the cadence of movement. And in some cases, they do. So understanding the deer's natural movement and tendencies, I think, is paramount. They show you how they want to use landscape. You know, there are indicators that, you know, a lot of people, for example, say, you know, deer use saddles. And you'll have people that draw out designs uh, utilizing saddles. Well, they use, you know, saddles in certain instances um, if they have to move fast through an area. And so some of the data that you look at through, you know, the seasonality will show their inclination to use you know certain terrain features at certain times. So thinking about that in the scheme of things. So the the next piece, of what I look at, is I look at the slope and aspect. And I said earlier about the heating and cooling. And you think about how deer enter and exit a property. A lot of times they're using in these highly pressured areas or just areas in general. They want the security of the environment to either conceal them to give them information, right? And so as they as they transverse the landscape, this is the beauty of snow. You get to you get to direct and understand you know, what that natural movement is. And I play off that most times. In some instances, I'll change their movement. And, and that'll be in accordance with the improvements we're trying to make. Generally speaking, and this, I don't want this to sound like hocus pocus, but I can put deer almost anywhere they naturally want to be. And when I say that naturally want to be is, I'm not going to put them in the middle of a swamp you know, with water sucked up to their bellies, right? I'm putting them in areas that aren't um, saturated with water. Um, generally speaking, when you're looking at hillsides, I'll do earthworks on hillside, right? You've probably heard me talk about putting, you know, multiple tr- uh, trenches or terraces. You know, I'll put swales in. I basically can place deer any, any, any particular area. So the emplacement deer have to relate to some particular long-term purpose. So we, we, we um, there's a concept that I want to introduce. It's called building the cake. This is one of my secrets to a hunting property. Okay. And I've talked a little bit of this on my podcast, but it's really simple. You're building value from uh, one point to the next point. And as that value stream increases, there's aspects of bedding, cover, food. You know, there's, there's certain attributes that increase through that value stream. So the first layer of the cake is okay. The second layer is better. And the third layer, the top of the cake, you know, with the candle and the frosting, is the best layer. And... And so in that process that puts deer kind of in your hopper that doesn't always work in the design philosophy sometimes we'll hunt in between and i call it bar- barbell hunting um and and depending on what you're trying to create on your landscape you want to be really specific on what trees you cut and what trees you don't cut like in my area you know a lot of times people will like overlook and they'll look totally economic and they'll say well uh, these yellow birch, you know, they, they don't really hinge cut well. Well, they hinge cut well during, you know, this time of year. And by the way, uh, their seedling production is highly consumed by deer. One of the most preferred plants on the, these particular landscapes, particularly when there's a good water saturation, I'm not cutting yellow birch. Or I'm cutting in a lower quantity versus maybe another species like hickory. Well, what type of hickory is that? Is that mock hickory? You know, what, what type of hickory is on your landscape? So, sometimes understanding the species will dictate where you'll cut and why. And so seasonality is important. Deer want to use certain terrain features at certain times. One huge mistake, Mitch, that people, like, it drives me nuts is they'll take a top of a hillside and they'll just put a food plot in there. And the terrain, and basically that takes away opportunity for them to hold deer. They'll hunt, hunt an area like that and it would be more apt to be a bedding area, particularly on these small properties. And so it's cutting those in a way where the deer wanna be their seasonality. And really it's the trick of the variation in cutting. If you cut certain styles, like for example, if you do group selection, single tree selection, you do a regenerative cut, if you have a variation in cutting style and picking species, the deer will stay there at a longer interval. And that's the most important piece of the design and layout. I don't want to make it more complicated, but I'm looking at each individual tree. And in, when my clients, what I basically say, is she pretty or is she ugly? And, you know, not to sound politically incorrect, but we we, we pick a pretty tree and we, we give a purpose and we address what it does for us in the landscape. And so in that, they start to learn that this tree actually has real ecological function. And that could be we could cut it and pollard it meaning we cut it not at the ground we cut it at a certain interval and it's like a you know it becomes a bush or a shorter tree that gives us visual benefit maybe it's a food benefit as a result of that you know those are trees that are going to stump sprout so we're trying to pick different individual species and group them into categories and say what does it do for me in the landscape and then we make the deer in some instances do what they naturally want to do and the trick to every this is if anybody wants to spend more time in their woods We'll walk around right now. Now's the time to scout. Pennsylvania season's over. You know, get out there and start studying your landscape. And then come up, take that information and put it on a map and say, oh, well, at least I know what deer are typically doing because I have the tracks and I understand that. And relate to that to some purpose and and use that trail camera data to start to diagnose when they're using those areas. And then maybe you can influence the why. And that's that's where I come into play. I'll tell you why, when. And the magic of hunting happens much easier. I mean, my clients are killing deer on their first hunt. I don't want to waste time with people. And, you know, this time I got to hunt so much this season. And, and it was because I wanted to experience unpredictable, uh, I wasn't strategic. I just went on and had fun. And I think sometimes you just need to have fun in this too. And and don't get overburdened by some of the things I'm talking about.
1: A- absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, some of the properties that I hunt and stuff, um, I- I've had the pr- uh, the a pleasure to learn from some people who I, I admire and appreciate one of the things i learned years ago if we'd make a food plot um let's and this is back before the days of of doing box plots, one of the things we would do is if we had an area that we thought we could make a food plot the first thing that would be done prior to any heavy work done chainsaws you know dozers equipment such like that was to pick the tree and to pick our access route in and out before any work was ever done. That way we had it nailed down and the, the, the design was built around the stand location. So <clears throat> taking that same concept from a food plot, um, you know, I'm somebody that believes you can definitely kill mature deer on food plots in pressured areas if done right however there's a lot more opportunity throughout a property to kill a deer if you do things right and and let's talk specifically about bedding areas or transition areas or whatever you want to call maybe maybe you're you're necking things down in a in a high odd spot where you can get in get out not not so my question to you, John, is when you look at a property and, and you're looking for stuff that's going to be good for October, November, um, kind of that that uh, ch- uh, cruising phase, chasing phase, whatever you want to call it, do you do that same concept for stand locations within a bedding area as far as picking a location that you believe this is where I can get in, get out, hang a tree stand, and now we're going to cut and design it in this manner? Or is that something that's typically not part of your uh strategy
0: so we design hunting locations to your point you know and and this is not my first part of the equation we build habitat to to gain interest and we want the deer as frequently on the property as as possible and let's be clear about this things change right you make some changes and they're going to react um but to your point and i think it's an excellent point is Picking many stand selection sites a part of that process, and sometimes we just focus on an area where we think we can get in and out of them and building the improvements around that. Naturally, the deer's flow and movement. Like for my example, like a good good example of my property, I've got pressure on the, the north side of my property, and I want deer to travel west and east. I want them to enter the property, but what, once, I, once they enter, I want them to go from the west to east location, so they give me more opportunities to, to harvest them. And so it was designing the property around movement. And movement is also intended to keep your deer on your property longer. So sometimes the instances and volume of cutting that you have will allow the deer to stay on your property longer. One example of the season was I had a good, let's say, I don't think it was mid-October, it was the October lull and I had nine bucks, nine, not five, okay, 46 acres, nobody's managing deer, blah, 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 right? I'm not special. I just, I knew I can do a, a lot of these little things correct. I had nine deer on my property, two shooter bucks. Now I didn't pick the right location. So I don't know. I'm not perfect every time, but the deer moved in a cadence from one bedding area to the next. And the way we designed these bedding areas is I was collecting trail camera data each interval. So sometimes it's not just building the infrastructure to um, hunt. It's building the infrastructure to collect data. And so I use that data to say, okay, when do they use that area? Why are they in that area? What deer are they socializing with? You know, how do they uh, involve themselves with some of the doe herd at that point? And so it's thinking about that individualistic deer because I'm not hunting, you know, multiple four and a halfs or five and a, half, five and a halfs. I'm, I'm hunting one particular deer and I'm trying to dial in his particular interests. Again, how he relates to, you know, other deer in the landscape. And the trick I think is figuring out that deer's tells and I'll tell a quick story. A deer that I hunted many years ago, his trick was figuring out in certain wind conditions. And I build bedding areas to promote wind in certain aspects. And this deer preferred this particular bedding location that I cut into an area on a north wind. And it was really positioning his body and influencing him to look a certain way to move a certain way, like we're physically positioning deer almost like they're in kennels and they're not caged, but to move and relate to the landscape in in a manner where they're going to project themselves in a location. So when we're cutting these bedding areas, we're physically trying to orient deer in certain aspects so they're pronounced, their movement is more pronounced in a particular direction. Uh, That shapes how they look at the landscape and move across the landscape. So if they see a visual and they've got a good area that they're looking into, they're going to be more comfortable walking in that area. You're not going to be able to hunt them in that. So it's separating those areas where you can get in and out of based on some of their preferences. And most of these mature bucks, and I don't want to make it just about mature bucks, most of these mature bucks in our particular areas, visual is absolutely paramount. That's why on a highly topography driven area, you can place deer in multiple locations. And it's giving them right volume of cover right amount of food in in adjacent areas. And so one of the things I'm focused on my own property is increasing food within those bedding areas. I am so lucky because I have little vernal pools, and I've been able to capture water, and I I just have a lot of hydrology. And the benefit is I can water all these plants, I can suck deer into particular areas, and they're going to stay there longer. And the intervals of movement in and out of bedding areas is reduced. And as a result, they're going to stay on my property longer. And you can influence really how long deer are sticking to your particular property based on the volume of cutting, the type of plants, how you distribute water in the landscape. And again, this is the difference a little bit between maybe the Don Hagans and the Tony LaPrats. is this is a little bit more integral to understanding the ecosystem and the volume improvements you need to make, particularly on really, really tough ground.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I want to say, you know, stems off of something you just said, you said about mature bucks, you and I like to hunt, mature bucks. However, it is not all about mature bucks. And I will I will say that all to the end. But the one thing I want to say is anybody who's listening to this and they're trying to take something away for their implementing on their property, mature bucks are the lowest hole in the bucket. And if you could do something that influences a mature buck, you can do something that will influence any deer that you want to harvest in the woods. And that's something I firmly believe. So um, getting a little bit more detailed in bedding areas too. So um, one one common thing that I, I hear a lot of foresters, even some consultants and other things say is, you know, the same age force that we have in so much of Pennsylvania. An easy way to make a bedding area is to overwhelm, is, is to remove canopy and overwhelm the understory, and deer are going to use it. And, and that's a very common thing that we're just going to cut trees, we're going to reduce the canopy and they're gonna figure out how to use that landscape on their self and then you just figure out how to hunt it around that. And I know that's really not your strategy and there there's a there's a good mix of of uh whitetail professionals that cut in specific manners more more detailed than just saying, Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna do a timber harvest, a, a very hard timber harvest, and we're gonna just set the age of the of the cut back. So let's dig into that a little bit more. I mean um, age of the cuts important for you. Age of the forest is important for you, but I mean, enlighten somebody that's, you know, like myself who, who wants to be educated a little bit more, like how should I view a bedding area on my property? If I've got, um, the same age forest and I just want to improve and stack more deer in there and the or- orientation of how I cut, so to speak.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the most important things is you always have to look at, you know, your property's orientation and relationship to the sun. You know, sun drives radiant energy, which increases the amount of energy on the forest floor. Pretty, pretty well understood by most people. Cutting canopy without any real purpose is is another failure that most people, I, I think, stumble in on. And and a lot of times when they're cutting bedding areas. You're just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a clear cut in here. And we don't typically use clear cuts as a means to establish bedding areas. They could be an aspect. Deer typically use the margins, so in our term, the science world is an eco term, uh, excuse me, ecotone, and in that ecotone, that creates a, a variation in, in microclimate. And so there's going to be a little bit more heat, a little more water, a little variation in plant life. And these plants that are existent in those particular areas, there's in a foot-by-foot section of, of ground, there's 5,000 seeds approximately that are resident through eons so sometimes when you disturb the soil you don't know what you're going to get so this whole regime of you know i guess tree canopy manipulation and soil disturbance gets you somewhere the next step back to the ecological function is what is that tree doing for is it in an area that's of good you know quality we look at the soil um, we look at the quality soil pick up and smell the dirt look at the profile of the, a particular soil that'll give you some indication Really, what we tell people a lot of times is look at the height of the the particular plant. Is it tall or short? And that will be an indicator of the quality of soil. So once you cut a tree, you can tell the age of that particular tree. And when you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it's in relationship to the other trees around it. A lot of times in these even age managed forests, they're anywhere between 80 and 120 years old. You're going to realize a lot of those trees have not reached peak maturity. So having a plethora of trees that are you know, eventually reaching peak maturity, taking some codominant trees that maybe are not of quality, um, maybe they're dead disease to form. We try to get those species out of there to promote, you know, timber stand improvement. And I don't really focus on the timber stand improvement versus the forest stand improvement in general. They sound about the same. One of the goals is I want to have an economic benefit or or a habitat or, or hunting benefit. And so to promote wildlife interest means create as much food value in a particular area. One strategy might be, you know, create an opportunity for other plants to grow in a particular area. And that might mean you remove all the trees that you don't like and you want to institute conifers. Very, very prudent, you know, typical opportunity. And you can use treetops for, you know, basically shielding those particular plants. It's free fencing. And you're introducing plants that you think will, you know, reside in that particular landscape. But, again, it's matching the soil type you know, to the particular, you know, index and related plants that typically grow in those areas. And a lot of people make, make a mistake there. One of the strategies that I walk into the properties is I look at the age class of trees. I may even cut a tree when I'm there. And then based on that, I'm deciphering what specific species I want to keep and what I don't want to keep. I'm a big fan of hinge cutting. I mean, I am, I'm about as pro hinge cut as you possibly can get. That doesn't mean I'm hinge cutting within bedding areas. I may be hinge cutting to control deer movement. And so it's being smart about what trees you use to create the right volume of cover. And a mistake that most people make is they make hinge cuts too tight. Um, we cut a lot of lines. We call them walls of cover. If you mm. listen to my podcast, walls of cover. It's a Jim Moore term, but you know a lot of us in the industry use that term, I feel like. And so we're building long walls of cover. But within those walls we create the infrastructure where deer want to exist and so it's taking the right features it's considering the slope you know a lot of times a huge i guess a huge problem and i'm going around about way to answer your question is you have um you have a hillside and we talked earlier about sometimes i terrace these hillsides and i may pitch it inward or outward and that depends on the volume of water that depends on what i think i can grow on that that particular hillside sometimes i'll pitch the back of the hillside a certain way So the deer are more inclined to use it. The vegetation on the upper hillside may require me to do multiple benching. You know, there's a lot that goes into this strategy just thinking about a hillside. Well, the key point, there's an area somewhere down the kind of line where um, it gets a little, uh, I think convex would be the term. And in that particular area, that's where we start really our improvements. So the slope and gradient is huge in the decision-making of where deer want to be. These guys get these mountainous properties. They don't know where to start. And a lot of times it's picking the right key point on the hillside to start building these bedding areas. And that's where I've really been able to do a nice job at figuring these things out. One new concept I want to just throw out here because you guys, there's a lot of users on this and the listeners that want to hear this, Mitch, is one of the strategies that came out a few years ago, and actually Ellinger just published something on this, and I really appreciate it because him and I, mean, I talked about it, is guys are coming and they're actually uprooting trees to give on hillsides Um, a visual kind of limitation. And that's something we came up with six years ago in the design process to eliminate deer's visual downslope, giving them some visual in certain orientations, but not giving them the full gamut, giving them kind of an acute angle to look at downhill, which allows you to hunt them easier. And that strategy has worked all over the place. In fact, we were on an awesome property a couple years ago, my partner and I, and we were cutting this property, and basically it was entirely wind-thrown and it was some of the best bedding you've ever seen in your life. It had chokecherry up the kazoo, and you know I'm a huge chokecherry guy. Chokecherry is my favorite plant, period. If you don't have it on your property, start including it. And, uh, you know, I really am a big fan of certain plant species because I see the ecological benefit, particularly to our deer. And then, you know, I'm I'm just trying to implement new techniques, and, and um, you know, that we'll, I'll talk more about that on my own podcast, but I think some of these concepts are – are huge for these landowners where nobody's going to do this work. Nobody understands it. And if you as a landowner say, hey, you know, knock over that tree or cut that tree over there and you have some strategy behind it, you're going to be so far beyond anybody's wildest dreams. You should start pulling in those better deer and big deer like good areas. That's just a fact. Mm. You know, if you create a quality, low pressure area, you're likely to have a good quality deer show up at some point.
1: So you you said a couple of specific things throughout our conversation, and and brought up something I wanted to touch on in that in that last little bit. But you, you talked a little bit about segmentation, um, you know you know layering things like that. You know we're layering a cake, and, and another another thing I've heard other people say is is you're you're creating like a you're creating pockets, right? You're you you're creating pockets in the landscape. and There's different ways to do that, um, you know. Diversity, you know, you talked about adding conifer. Well, that's going to create a new edge. I know you, I, I saw an Instagram reel you did. You started adding in a couple of places, you, you put some native grasses within a bedding area to kind of do some, some different uh, layering and structuring and different structure within that bedding area. Um, and then another thing you just brought up is walls of cover. And that is one thing. I, I, I really want to dumb that down and break that down into like 101 level because people hear about walls of cover and I I think there's a lot of confusion. So I want to, first of all, when you talk about a wall of cover, are you making a, a wall, are you segmenting an area that this wall is not, Penetrable, or is it? Is this a permeable wall, but it's creating an edge that hopefully deer, you know, let's say the 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 wall, so to speak, is uh, is a north and south line, and deer do have the ability to go east and west to it because it's permeable, but it's 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 a line that's favored to get them to move in a north and south manner. Or are you, are you comfortable within a bedding area or an edge or feathering or whatever, creating areas that. They're not going through that. It is truly a wall. It's high, they can't see, and they can't pass through it.
0: Yeah, and this is a trick. So if you're gonna, the wall of cover is difficult because there's variations in walls. Some walls are shorter than long. Than longer. Some, sometimes it depends on the species that we're, you're working with. I work with a lot of hard maples. So that's one of the harder species to hinge cut. And it's you have to be very particular on when you hinge cut that tree. So you can't just go in on a very, very cold day the tree isn't as, you know, it, there's not a, the vascular system is, is not as frequently moving up and down, and so the xylem and, and phloem is not producing, you know, uh, uh, nutrients. And so you have to be very selective when you cut, hinge cut particular trees. Most of the times, I'm trying to stack trees on trees. So this is this is a technical thing. You're trying to align yourself to the next tree, and you can do this in a domino effect, and a lot of times that's that's pretty productive. However, Sometimes if you cut them wrong, they, they break off and it becomes a maintenance issue. You want to be able to sometimes access these walls of cover because, you know, one of the tricks is giving enough structure so the deer may utilize that. Like in your example, as a north-south movement, but it also could be a concealment thing. So, like a lot of times, I'm working on a hillside, and in a hillside, I'll do this giant wall of cover. The intention of that hillside is to break it up. It's it, or, or sometimes it's to break it up and direct move. And within that area, I'll cut my bedding, I'll do my bedding cuts. And bedding cuts could be felling trees, you know, typical notch fell. Um, sometimes we do a couple of different uh, styles of cuts, etc. cetera. Um, sometimes we'll, oh, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll hinge cut sometimes within those areas. Sometimes we'll uh, poller trees or coppice trees. I mean, there there's the, those styles within those bedding areas to create structure. And again, you know, the idea of a, a wall of cover is generally to create a back wall. Almost think of a baseball backstop. And adjacent to that or next to that, very few things can grow depending on the sun orientation. So it's thinking about setting up that wall so there isn't a lot of maintenance on one side, particularly. And it's shading that out, giving an opportunity for a deer, depending on the slope, uh, to have interest in that particular area. Permeable walls are good because deer want to see in certain instances. So having these very dense walls that are uh, confining or they don't give a deer a visual opportunity to see past it could be problematic. So in some instances, we'll make walls more permeable and in some intervals, we'll make it tighter. It just depends. So I'll look at the landscape for the volume of vegetation. I'll introduce a wall to, again, mostly segregate deer. And sometimes I build boxes. Sometimes I zigzag them, you know, think of a zigzag line. Um, Sometimes I'll orientate where it's gonna flow like a snake. You know, there's different cutting techniques to make these deer move in certain orientations, and there's a purpose. Sometimes I'm speeding up movement, sometimes I'm slowing it down. You know, there's there's examples in this equation where this wall, depending on the height, may want deer to. If you make it too high, sometimes deer won't want to be up against it very closely. So one example is a hedgerow. When you have a very dense hedgerow that doesn't have a lot of porosity, uh, they don't tend to be very close to it, and a lot of times I'm building and, you know, this isn't giving any secret away. Watch the deer walk up and down a hedgerow. If there's food and a little bit of cover in that hedgerow, they have a tendency to be right up against it. And so the other point of that is that hedgerow collects minerals, water, and, and things that of that nature that give that deer an interest in that particular area. So you're stacking all these aspects adjacent to a wall and all of a sudden the deer are highly attracted to that particular area. When I'm cutting walls, the one thing I will do is I'll decide to cut a wall live or dead, meaning dead, dormant, live when it's live, and it may be for a particular benefit. Sometimes I'll cut during the growing season just to attract deer to a particular area, and I'll save a wall um, in order to gain interest. Maybe I'm building, in, you know, maybe I'm building a bedding area adjacent to that. Maybe I'm just developing a line of movement. One thing I've done, and I did this on my own particular property, is I have a, a hillside. And on this hillside, I've stacked the wall in intervals, and I've created beds, and I've shoveled them out. And what I've done is in between that, and this is north-south orientation, on the other side, I've created a wall on one side and, and uh, grass cover. And that grass cover gives them that feeling of comfort because they could jump in and out of the grass, but they're actually stuck. They can't go to the other side. Uh, they can't go to that western edge. They can only stay on the eastern edge, and that puts them right in my bread basket down the way. So they're going to they're gonna stay on that edge a lot harder because of the style cutting adjacent to the planning system that I've had in play. Um, so hopefully that answers some of your questions. But these walls can be various heights, various density. They can be excellent sources for creating nesting cover for turkeys. I had a property that I worked on this year where I cut it, and it, the intention of it was to build nesting cover. And that's what we use the wall of cover for, is to develop nesting cover. So the depth of that cover and the ability for, you know, a young, small, you know, turkey to get in there was really, really important. It gives them the structure to roost on it. And sometimes you can plant trees in these walls of cover as well. And sometimes I have living trees in there, depending on what I'm trying to promote. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things that go into each one of these decisions. And let me just be clear, it's not just a line of trees sometimes.
1: Yeah, right, yeah, and I think that does answer the question, John. The, the the thing that gets me, and, you know, I'm somebody who loves to overthink everything just because I love this. I love to manipulate stuff. I love deer and love deer hunting and everything else, but, um, you know, I I really find, like, you were talking about the, the dead walls. Like, I've used dead walls, um actually for access routes along a food plot where I'll, I'll create a, a wall that I can use for basically my own concealment I mean if you're clearing let's just say it's a monotonous timber right and you're clearing a food plot you know there's some some people would say you don't want any of that those brush piles are bad I personally disagree I think you can use some of those tops to your, to your benefit in cases for entering and exiting without deer seeing you or hopefully hearing you and creating trails and stuff like that so in a case like that I've seen where that wall will work however my application in bedding um i think it just comes down to knowledge and experience right um and that could be anybody i am looking to learn all the time you know, we're stewards of the game stewards of wildlife i want to learn how can i cut and orient deer in a way that's going to just improve my goals which is to hold them longer provide more of what they need and then really the the, the big one is steer them where I want them to go and hopefully steer them in a location that's advantageous for a bow spot it's because I, my my dominant goals, I want to shoot a deer with the bow. Now, I'll kill a deer with anything. I don't really care, and I'll kill it any time of the season. That's just my preference. So those specific goals, you know, that, that can be uh, – that, that's a journey for me and, and learning how to cut through that, and I think there's a lot of different philosophies and how to get there, um, and, uh, you know, you've had a lot of experience, and I'm, I'm just – I'm rambling at this point, but it's, it's, it's all real good stuff. I love it and and appreciate your input to it.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest thing, if you're designing a property around bow hunting, you know, you're, you're a lot closer to game and that's obvious, right? Um, Obviously we want people to be able to extend the range and be comfortable shooting further distance, but most of us aren't, you know, including me, like I, i prefer them at 20 yards, but you know, that, that always doesn't happen. So, You know, whatever your max range is should be kind of part of your design philosophy. I try to stack deer as close as I can to my hunting locations. And that that seems obvious for some people, but what the problem now lies is my intrusion factor is so great. How do I give the balance of you know minimal intrusion, not impacting the deer? You know, so it's it's positioning them in the way where you can get as close as possible. You always hear these really good hunters talk about hunting these deer basically in the margins. They're hunting just this, this off wind that just misses the deer. And and I'm actually designing properties influencing wind, the way that wind travels along the landscape. And then putting deer in specific areas and, and orienting them to benefit them for the wind, but also give me the opportunity as close as possible. And so I worked with a client. I was in, um, uh, where was I recently? I don't know. I was I'm in a new place every week. So where I was, you know, so um, I, I was talking to this particular client about channels and cutting channels to create airflow. This is a concept that is is not new. I, I'm not revolutionary, revolutionizing this concept, but cutting channels to create deer flow. Well, if you create these very open pockets, so your regeneration cuts, a lot of times air will swirl those particular areas depending mm-hmm. on its orientation. So those areas are very hard to hunt. And so in placing deer in those areas and giving them an opportunity to benefit from that cutting is really critical. So it's not just cutting timber, like we were talking earlier, it's cutting the deer, cutting timber to allow the deer to be advantaged because of the wind conditions. And it's understanding how those wind conditions influence their interest and then how they position themselves as a result of that. And so you can be very, very specific on where you place deer. And one of the things that I like to, consider as like a a rule stick of success. And I'll just take my own particular property. So I have layered systems where there's buffers between me and the deer, right? And forget the plant material. It doesn't doesn't matter at this point. Can you get in and out of your tree stand without being detected? Mm. And I hunted a a particular stand this year nine times. I, I typically hunt five times a year. I hunted it nine times. The last time I hunted it, um, this was during bow season with my son. We had seven deer in the field. And as I'm like sneaking out of the particular area, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to bust them? The closest one was 28 yards. We got out of the stand. You know, they didn't cut our tracks. There was no, you know, there, there was no issues at all. And I get a picture on my cell camera right when I get back to the car, they're still up there. They didn't run away. So you've got to look at these little indices. And to me, that's that's what I remember about my deer season. It's not the deer that I killed. It was did this system or did, did my strategy work? And and sometimes that's more meaningful than, you know, I know you killed the giant buck this year, but sometimes it's more meaningful than having a, a giant buck, you know, sitting there and, and being able to take pictures because you are successful and you're doing something that's meaningful and you're seeing results. And and for some of you that aren't killing giant bucks, that's okay. Um, this isn't all about giant bucks. Like Mitch said, it's, it's about finding success in some of these small, strategies that seem to be working and I can tell you that's my most notable experience this year because I can't believe that I was able to get out in that instance.
1: You know, I, I said this on another podcast not too long ago. My wife got, uh, well she'll get disgusted with me. Of course, she's tired and ready for hunting season to be over, and and it never is. And she, um, you know, I, I was fortunate. I was, I had tagged out uh, the past two seasons. I, I tagged out fairly early with a buck tag. You know, shot some doe and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I'll have people we'll be with friends and family and stuff, and they'll be like, "Well, are, are you satisfied now?" And uh, mm-hmm. my wife's like, "No, he's never happy." I said, "You know, it's it's funny because it's a." double-edged sword the the kill is obviously the the icing to the cake in what you were trying to accomplish but that's not what I enjoy I enjoy hunting I enjoy the process I enjoy everything about leading up to it and you know I'd be lying to say that um, like like I'm thinking about the kill when I'm in the tree stand when I'm in a tree stand most of the time I'm looking at what this this spot has to offer and how can I make it better and and like that's all the time that's how my mind thinks constantly I hunted a property this week it was you know one of the first times I was ever able to hunt it and you know, I I had uh, had some influence in helping this person with food plot orientation and stuff and they said hey why don't you come try to shoot a doe here so as I'm sitting there and I saw what we did from the food plot stance I'm looking at the rest of their property thinking man if we would do this this and this that would put us in the direction for, for i i think potential success a better better hunting opportunity and that's what i love and i think that's what most of us love when you really enjoy um white tails and, and and this from a year-round perspective
0: it's tough because you know you you give these examples and ideas and things work and then all of a sudden they don't work and you're like wow you know i, I hear a lot of discussion on water holes and you know the focus on you know their their significance on the landscape and a lot of the areas that i work in you know, water is very prevalent. And, you know, water holes, for example, and I've done recent studies on this with clients and myself, their utilization only increases at the point where there's an inflection point where, you know, the vegetation starts to senesce and there isn't as much value in the landscape. But, you know, a lot of times these deer are switching to, you know, woody material. And one of the suggestions I want for a lot of these clients is to think about the volume of woody material on your property. Today, um, I had a rumor. Somebody called me and said a big deer got hit over by your property. My property's basically sandwiched between a bunch of dudes that hunt a lot and a switchback road that guys fly up and down, hitting deer. So I'm not in a great area, right? And somehow I'm 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 able to hunt these deer and kill big bucks. Don't ask me why. I think I think maybe I'm blessed. But beyond that, the big thing to me is thinking about you know what your landscape has in off to offer and taking it slow. If you're not willing to hire a consultant, there's nothing wrong with that. But what you can't do is you can't sit idle. If you have a woodlot that isn't productive, that you're not seeing the deer, you need to make some decisions. If you're not comfortable to make decisions, start doing some research. Um, I wouldn't pay as much to the YouTube channels and some of those guys. I think Jeff Sturgis does a great job marketing. There's tons of good guys that are out there doing it. what's their hands-on experience? Guys that are actually able to get their hands dirty, And what you'll find is as you start to get your hands dirty and make some decisions and mistakes so when my clients i say hey you can't get me you know i can't get to them till 2025 and i give them all these homework assignments and i say go screw up your property because i'm going to fix it when i'm there and it gives us a chance to interact in a way where they've learned and i've been able to teach and it becomes a more team uh oriented type scenario have that relationship with the folks that you hunt with like mitch you brought this up you're helping people like Use that as an influence to architect and shape your design and philosophy. And you're not going to get it right every time. You don't, If you have me come and give you 100% of the answers, does it mean as much as it would if you, you know, figured it out yourself? Probably not. However, you could have somebody come and give you the recommendations. And at the same point, if you're doing the work, you're going to get the net benefit out of it. Or maybe you need some help doing the work whatever the case may be is get people around you that have similar goals and interests and figure out how you can you know, build that companionship around design. Hopefully this, you know, listening to this podcast gives you an opportunity to think differently about your property. I'm not giving you all the answers here, but I'm giving you a lot of information to think about. And really what I tell clients is be different. That's the goal. If you can just be different, you'll probably do better than most people. And that's being smart about how we hunt, where we hunt, how we cut, what we cut, and, you know, some of the examples on my particular clients is um, I have a 72-year-old client. He's one of my favorite guys, and he shot the biggest three bucks in his life after we cut and laid out his property, right? 72 years old. How much more does that man have to live? He's experiencing the best moments of his life, and he's doing the work. He's actually doing the work out there, and he's getting the enjoyment out of it. So the more we hunt, the less we learn. So sometimes it's taking, to Mitch's example, sitting in that tree stand and thinking about everything that's going around and saying, don't don't degrade your decisions, don't degrade yourself, but think about what you can do. And there's a million different things that you can do, and there's not 100% correct solution to anybody. And that's why having these debates with these consultants about I'm right or you're right or his property's better, think about the confluence of the areas that they're hunting. Think about their experience and think about what they bring to the table. If you can give somebody that can give you a quick ROI and and give you the, the ability to level up, well worth the ability to listen to them and focus on, you know, their ability to influence and, and give you some decision opportunities. And one of the things with me, Mitch, is I don't know everything, and I've been so fortunate. Every night I sit and I read. I'm reading stuff about nothing to do with deer hunting. I'm studying many different things that relate to having a better perspective on just overall health and health of our landscapes. And I think that's very important when we're starting to make some of these decisions. And I think if people are healthier in their mind and they're more uh, inclined to uh, explore different ecology principles, you'll get away from some of the information that's, uh convolutes your mind that's, that's on YouTube. And I, I hope people start thinking different. And there's a lot of good stuff on YouTube, but I think we get sucked into this one particular technique is gonna get you there. And guess what? Fire isn't gonna solve everything. It's not. And guess what? Timber cutting isn't going to solve anything. It's not. And it's just thinking maybe piece of those in the right particular, uh, uh, cadence might get you to the point of success. So. I guess that's a little bit of my keynote. Mitch.
1: I think that's a great, great point. And I was, I was gonna let you go, but I just thought of something. I really want to ask you, and it doesn't have to be long. But you, you, right. brought, you brought up wind through the bedding area, and wind being a steward of the wind, I think is something really, really interesting. I'm just curious, John. Do you have any tips for anybody to say, like? this is a good way that or this is a way i've learned how wind moves through terrain and how how to manipulate it you know i've uh, i i listened to a podcast uh with not too long with Troy Pottinger and he talks about out west that they've got old man's beard hanging at all kinds of different elevations within trees and he really likes to watch what the wind is doing he'll stand in a location for a long time i'm just kind of curious do you have any thoughts on on reading the wind um just from a general sense and not getting too crazy into detail from cutting and hunting and everything else.
0: So I don't want to reference people to the podcast I did, but I'm going to real quick. I did a podcast this year on wind and Mitch, you love this stuff. And I actually did that podcast cause I thought you might listen to it. And uh, hopefully you did. And if you did, <laughs> uh, that was, that was for you actually. Uh, you don't know that, but um, we've talked enough where, where, hopefully that was valuable. Um, but Here's what I'll say. Um, we design bedding areas in the same principles where um, how we hunt an area. We don't want to go in them. And we design bedding areas so they're not huntable. <laughs> and that seems in opposition of what everybody uh, tries to do. And so how we can influence uh, or influence those those things. And and I can think of a, a particular area that I caught recently where there's uh a primary head slope, and then off that's kind of a nose slope. So it kind of contours down, kind of like your nose. And you know, we wanted certain aspects of that to be warm and cold. And a lot of times we'll cut the wind in certain orientations so the deer are looking in a particular position. Think about how wind travels across the landscape. So there's going to be areas where there's thermal conductivity, air is heating, it's radiating, and then we have cold sucks. So there's no such thing as thermals in the evening that misconception. Um, But as air sinks, it's going to fit into these different pockets, and you're going to have this basically opposing viewpoints of warm areas, cool areas. That creates a rotating cycle of air, and sometimes that circular motion influences where a deer is going to sit and orient itself. So as an example, if you have hard lines and soft lines, or you you have trees with there's more, uh, less transparency, like conifers, Up against an open line that's going to have a tendency to create a wall and at that wall it's going to be a convergence of wind and that's where the deer are going to try to orientate themselves and that's why these margins between these different cuttings tend to be a focal point for deer so orienting the deer in a direction that you want them to go or putting them in a position where they're comfortable and this could be multiple deer remember if you pay attention to um, what deer like is they want to position themselves in different orientations a lot of times it's for comfort so giving him the right volume of comfort in accordance with, you know, these cutted, cutted channels. And in this case, off that nose, I cut a long channel down, so air flew down that channel. And then what I did, I distributed it almost like a stream into one pocket and the other pocket. So think of, like, your lungs and it branches off. And in that area where it branches off, I created a convergence of different um, ecotypes or uh, ecotypes and ecotones. And what that did is it created a spinning of the air. So, it's kind of like, I mean, I know this is probably like level 500 or 600 for folks, but what it does is it puts deer in particular areas and allows them to reside based on different wing conditions. And it's reading those. And think of that whole bronchial tube, you know, esophagus, bronchial tubes splitting off, and then these channels of movement. And you can influence and influence deer in particular areas based on the cutting cells and techniques. You have to look at the elevation. You have to look at the tree the volume of trees the composition of those trees the density of those trees that's all friction of the wind and that will dictate where deer want to be and why and my partner thinks i'm crazy and i am because i hunt really tough areas and if this works in 46 acres i live in tully new york Go look it up on a map it's not the capital of the deer it's uh really the capital of nothing uh, and not the dear world. If I can be successful here, so can you just got to, you know, think a little bit deeper about some of these things. If that makes sense.
1: It absolutely does. John, I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is a busy time of the year for you. So I really appreciate you taking time and coming on to my show and let me pick your brain. I really like to to pick your brain when I get the chance. So I thank you. Um, real quick, um, plug Whitetail Landscapes, plug what you're doing. And I know you said you're, you're a ways out, but if people want to look into you, um, where can they find you?
0: Yeah. So I'm at whitetaillandscapes.com. I do have some social media presence you can see me on instagram i'm trying to increase that i'm on the road a lot and i work with a lot of clients so it's tough um i'm not like a big youtuber to get people attracted to my business my podcast is obviously out there you can listen to me and learn from me mitch you've been on my podcast you're going to be in my podcast again this year you know Mitch does you know we got a food plot segment mitch is going to be involved we'll have a bunch of guys involved with that so it's just just follow me. Um, this podcast is awesome. You have actually some of the best guests compared to all the Sportsman Empire, um, you know, type podcasts that are here. You've had some of the best guests, period. I've listened to your podcast, so I'm a big, I guess, proponent of you and what you're doing. And um, I think you bring a lot of value to the table, and you have a ton of experience. And I think it's important that people, you know, pay attention to to you in Pennsylvania and really across the country because guests that you have on are great and you're great you know it's they're great conversations
1: well on, on that note john <laughs> no, thank you i appreciate it i appreciate your kind words john uh yeah it's good you have good you have me yeah. on the show and uh, i can't wait to do it again so take care man uh, i really appreciate it all
0: right thanks Mitch. talk to you soon see ya maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.